This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 53. This is Writing Excuses, funding the writing life. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we want to get paid. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron. And I'm Howard. And it just occurred to me that this is our last episode of the year, which I think is a great time to think about. You know, it's holidays, it's making resolutions, it's thinking about what you want. And one of the things that we want is, as Howard said, to get paid. And so how do we actually get money for writing? I think there are a lot of ways that writing and the skills that we use in writing can actually end up with money in our pocket. And so I wanted to explore some of these. And so... I think the easiest one is getting paid for your words directly. Don't mm-hmm. want, I feel like this is something. I love how you say that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> you, you know it's a lot the most this. obvious, right? Yeah. The, most the most obvious, obvious is, you know, you write a book, you get an agent, you get it published by a traditional publisher, you get paid in advance, right? Like, um, that is sort of the most traditional path, um, as we've alluded to. It's not yeah. always an easy one. Um, and, you know, one thing to think about as I, I think sometimes a thing that happens is you hear, oh, so-and-so got a six-figure deal for their book. And it's like, great. A six-figure deal is amazing. Everyone should be really excited about that. This is not me taking wind out of anybody's sales. But also you need to remember that that money is going to be portioned over a very long period of time. You get paid a portion on advance. You get paid when you deliver the book. And you get paid when the book is published. And then usually paid or not usually, but often paid when that book is in a second format, paperback. So that money can be spread out over, at the fastest pace, four years uh, or three years. Uh, can be up to five, you know, uh, depending on how fast you write, depending how fast the publication cycle goes. So that money, that $100,000, incredible amount of money, 15% of that is coming off the top to your agent. And then from what you receive from that, a portion that's going to the government, right, for taxes. So now your actual living income is in the neighborhood of more like fifty to sixty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, spread out over three to five years. That suddenly looks a lot less like a living wage when you really map out how long it takes for that first book income to hit. Now, as you have more books, you can have more regular payments. Hopefully, you're getting royalty payments from older books, and that really helps even things out over time, but it takes years and years and years to get to a point where you can be really stably dependent on your traditional book publishing income. And I, I want to be, I, I, I wanna actually want to preface all of this with the, the imposter syndrome problem that we see with writers and artists of all stripes, which is this idea that we, we tend to undervalue our work. Absolutely. Mm. And... You you wrote a thing. You deserve to get paid for it. You know you mm-hmm. may be you may decide to self publish and you list it on Amazon and you tell yourself uh, nobody would pay more than ninety nine cents for this book. And the answer is well, if you list it at ninety nine cents, then nobody's going to pay more than ninety nine cents for that book. Mm. But uh, you if you wrote a book, you deserve more than ninety nine cents for it. Yeah. This and is why you need someone like me who's constantly telling you you're being undervalued for your work. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And but I I want to lead with that because you will almost always, almost always 
undervalue your own work. Whatever you think your writing is worth, that number's probably too low. Mm-hmm. Um, and hey, that's good news. It, that, that's, that's really good news. It means you're worth more than you think you are. That said, there's also a thing that happens to people who have not who who have the dream of being a career writer, mm-hmm. where they they overestimate how much money their their writing is actually going to break in yes. bring in. Um, so we we've talked about traditional publishing route. Uh, you can also do self publishing. You can there's a bunch of different ways. But the the main thing that I want people to understand is that as a writer, you are a freelancer, and the the key. Um, maxim for a, a a freelancer is diversify your income stream. Yes. And so what we're talking about today is all of the different ways that you can bring in writing uh, money through your from your writing, whether or not it is sending sending the words out. Uh, almost every single writer that I work with who does not have a day job, who's writing full time, has diversified their income stream in a variety of ways, whether that's writing other formats, whether that's speaking appearances, uh, school visits, uh, frankly, having a partner who is providing healthcare or some financial stability, right? There's, there's a lot of different ways that people are able to have the life where they are writing as their primary, or not even primary, only job. And I think there are two, a way to frame this is that there are sort of two things as a freelancer that you can get paid for. Yes. One is the work that you produce, and two is what you bring to the table as the type of person who can produce it. And I think that's true for writing as well. Yeah. So thinking about the things that you just listed off, things that are like being paid for your direct writing, that's like the book, you're getting paid. Being paid for other writing you can do in other formats is one way that can often be like the... I don't want to say easy, but it seems like you know how to write creatively. Now you're going to figure out how to write creatively in games. So I yep. personally like started doing writing in tabletop games because I was like, I love world building. A lot of tabletop is world building. How can I take this skill that I already have and do it in a different way? And I know you've had like clients who've gone into like comics mm-hmm. and other form formats where you're taking your, you know, your creative mind and doing just a slightly different format with it. Yeah, I have several clients who write in games as well. Uh, I don't know if I have anyone who does tabletop. Uh, one person who does tabletop, but a lot of video game writing. Um, uh, I, have, I have three or four clients who write for video games either as freelancers or sometimes full-time, depending on on the role. Um, I have a bunch of clients who've gotten into writing for comics, right? Some of that is doing their OGNs, doing or you know original graphic novels or uh, limited series that are original IP. But a bunch of them are doing a bunch of uh, work for the big two as well, right? Uh, writing DC, writing Marvel comics. Um, you know, my client Alyssa Wong has written on Doctor Afro for many years. Is doing Deadpool now. Um, my client Sarah Gailey is is uh, launching the new White Widow solo title coming up in a few months. So there's a lot of work that's happening for. Or, uh, in the comics world, that is good freelance opportunities that can really bulk out your writing income. And because writing a comic script is a different pace and a different style than writing a full novel, it can fit into your workflow in a way that it'll be between edits. It'll be between that period when you've sent your novel in, you're waiting for feedback, or you're waiting for the publication cycle. There are ways you can really schedule out the rhythm of your writing life to make space for comic script writing in addition to the prose that you're working on. One of the tips that I I lean into pretty hard is, uh, and it begins with the strategy of 
never throw anything away. Mm-hmm. Mm. That fanfic you wrote when you were 15, uh, that Star Wars fanfic, um, after a certain point, you've got some writing chops. You can open something like that up and realize, oh, wait, I can file the serial numbers off of these pieces, and there is a plot, and there are some characterizations, and if I reverse this, and if I change that and change that, oh, my goodness, I have this whole new thing. Um, I imagine myself sometimes as, you know, as a woodworker who has a garage full of things that are half nailed together. And then along comes this client who needs a set of cabinets. And I walk into the garage and I say, what looks like cabinets? Ooh, that kind of looks like cabinets. And that and that and pull it to the table and, and boom, I make it. Uh, your boneyard has enormous value, don't throw anything away. I think also, though, with your boneyard, as you're in there, um, figuring out how the skeletons of different formats work and how to yeah. put the bones you have into the skeleton that you need it to yeah. fit into. Exactly. So sometimes people will be like, well, that was great to tell me to just become a game writer, but how do I do that? Seems <laughs> seems rough. Um, and part of it is that you have to learn a little bit about that format. Yes. It's unlikely that someone will trip over you in the street and be like, I want you to write the new you know, Dragon Age uh, game, we all wish, but no. And so what you do is if you like games and that's something you think you might want to go into and it's tabletop, write a quick scenario. Mm-hmm. Write something up and try mm-hmm. to like put it somewhere and see if somebody will buy it on itch.io or like even Make give you game, feedback. You know? yeah. Make a twine game yeah. if you want to do interactive. Try playing and that will let you know, number one, is this something that fits into your schedule or does it just make your brain not like writing at all? And also, is this something that you can, you think you can do well? And thirdly, if you are in the position, like you see a job posting or you see something going on, you're following people, I would say on whichever social media still exists at the time that this (laughs) airs, follow people who are doing that kind of work, then you can actually say, okay, I have something to show you because I went and made something on my own. And with that, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about how to just get paid for being your lovely, wonderful self. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This week, I want to talk to you about a movie. Um, I saw a film earlier this year called Joyland. Uh, it's been a pretty incredible year for cinema, but this one is, for me, a real contender for the best thing I saw this year. Um, it's a film by a director named, uh, named Saim Sadiq. It is uh, his debut film. Um, it is the story of the youngest son in a Pakistani family 
in a very traditional family um, who is under a lot of pressure to get a job. And he ends up as a backup dancer for a, for a Bollywood-style burlesque company dancing as the backup dancer to a trans woman. Um, and he really falls into this woman's orbit. Um, it is a story that is of incredible queer joy and experience and community. It is also about the tension of living in a traditional family and the things that tie you to that family, the bonds of love and connection um, and relationship, and also the enormous amount of pressure that that conflict puts on the 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 younger generation and the people around you, and in particular, the way in which that the women of this world are forced to carry a lot of the emotional weight of the people around them. Um, it's a very, very beautiful movie. It is a joyful movie. It is an incredibly tragic and sad movie. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, I sobbed through the whole last act of it, and it is an incredible, incredible film. Please go see it. That Once again, that is Joyland by Saeem Sadiq. One thing I want to flag about the conversation we we're having right before the break is that I do also want to make sure that we acknowledge that these are full careers in and of themselves, right? So we've talked about them as side things that writers do, and it is true that in, for many writers that is happening, but it does require its own networking, connections, attention, and craft, right? And also understanding and respecting that there are people who do this full-time it is their primary career, and, you know, just because it may be a side gig for one person doesn't undermine that in any way. But a lot of times when you're going for these gigs, kind of as Aaron was alluding to a little bit, is you need to put the time and effort in to build the connections, to get to know people, to learn how to do this thing well. People aren't just going to come to you and hand you an opportunity. Some That does happen every now and again. But in general, it's a thing that you need to think about as an actual business that you were developing with real skills that you were developing. And that I think, is so important. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the things that you can do to to help position yourself is is by thinking about what you yourself individually bring to the table, mm-hmm. which gets into what you were talking about, Erin. That we would discuss after the break, which is how to how to basically monetize yourself. Yeah. This is hard, and this is where that imposter syndrome. If we thought it was bad when it was just your work, when it's you. I think it can be so much harder because it's very easy to say, I say this all the time to myself, like, what am I saying that, like, you know, people want to spend money on? But I think you kind of have to, you know, put it out there and try. And so we've talked in the past about, I think one is newsletters and Patreons. That is who you are as a writer, as a creative, going out into the world and saying to people, do you want to help support me in doing this work? I don't know if y'all have any thoughts on that. No, it's it, it's very much that. Like when I first started doing the Patreon, I felt like I needed to do a lot of um, a, a lot of uh, like I'll send you a, a postcard in the mail. Mm-hmm. And and what I realized was actually no, what people are showing up for is the expertise that I have from the time that I've spent. And and I but I didn't feel like that's like I didn't feel like that was something I could commodify. And now I recognize that it is. Um, at the same time, the, there are other things that I'm doing to diversify that income stream where I'm using the skills that I have gained as a writer and stepping to the side with them. So some of it is teaching, some of it is public speaking, but some of it is the audiobook narration. Like those two, those are both forms of storytelling and, and they are things that I can do in parallel. And so what I look for are additional skills that I have within myself that I can monetize that also refer back to the writing skill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 
I would say like a for me, one of those side things is actually I worked in nonprofit communications mm-hmm. for a while. It's something I had a bit of a background in, but also for me, the type there's a lot of creativity in in just in the way there is in prose writing and creative writing. There's a lot of creativity in writing a newsletter article or, you know, writing about an issue. And so bringing those skills and the way that I think about writing into making you care about what is happening in a particular social justice issue mm-hmm. felt to me like the same skill set used in a different way. And there are people for whom this does not work, I will say. Yeah. There are folks for whom if you write during your job, it is taking the writing out of your brain for the creative writing that you want to do later. For me, it really fed me because I was like, oh, I'm learning about all these really interesting issues in the nonprofit sector. And now I'm thinking about, ooh, what can I use? How can I use these as a way to build a world in a creative life? So I was able to both get money from it, but also use it as a way to feed my well as opposed to like, taking out of the well. That makes sense. As writers of, of you know, big fictions, we're often told, you know, hey, come up with an elevator pitch for your book. Come up with a, uh, you know, give us a 50-word description, uh, whatever. There are, there are businesses, I say there are businesses, every business out there that makes a product has a need of good 10, 25, 50, and 100-word descriptions of their product, and nobody sweats words like an author who is trying to come up with a 50-word description of the novel they've spent the last decade on. <laughs> if, you've, if you've ever tried to do that for your own work, and then you look at somebody, you know, Widget Co's, uh, you know, Wingnut product, whatever, um, you may find that it is super easy to write write to spec marketing copy like that for people. You, you know what? I'm going to jump in here because I'm going to say that the, the worst thing that a writer has to write is their own bio. If you can set up a business model where you will write bios for writers, I am certain that writers will flock to you and give you, I will fling money at you myself. <laughs> <laughs> business ideas, you heard it here first. <laughs> You know, as someone who writes a lot of book copy for other people, yes, uh, it is a lot easier to write someone, describe someone else's book than describe your own. Um, one thing I want to tag on to all of this, you know, we kind of hit a little bit on in-person appearances as one way to generate income. You know, Mary Robinette, I know you do a lot of conferences. Um, the clients, I have a few clients who are very good at performance, and performance has been a big part of their role uh, in their pre-writing life. And, you know, that has continued to be a source of income for them that is connected to their writing now, right? So uh, my client Chuck Tingle went on tour earlier this year for the launch of his debut novel, Camp Damascus. And we were able to do a lot of in-person book events, but then also in a lot of those markets, he was also setting up additional events that were more of a personality event. It was, there were ticket events where people came. They weren't associated with a bookstore about the book launch. It was more come see Chuck talk about XYZ or come see Chuck in conversation with somebody else. And those were ticketed things that we were able to do because he was a personality, because he was a brand and was able to drive that himself. Um, on If you're a YA, a middle grade author, my client Marco Shiro does a lot with schools and libraries, does a lot of school visits that are often paid visits that, you know, in part because Mark is great on stage, great at talking about things, used to you know, be have their own internet personality brand before they started writing novels. And so that has really dovetailed for them as a skill. Not everyone's going to be able to do that, but sometimes you can inventory what are things you're good at, what do you enjoy doing, 
Do you like being in front of a crowd? Are you good at public speaking? You can lean into that and make that a part of your writing life in a way that can be very financially rewarding and help build your brand, bring you new readers, and so on and so forth. One of the the things that I have, uh, you know, the the things that has been very difficult for me um, is is that appearance fee mm-hmm. because you can ask for an appearance fee when you are going and you are appearing at a convention. Um, it, particularly, I'm speaking specifically to those of you who are uh, in a very particular place where you're starting to get guest of honor appearances. Um, you can actually say, what are your usual uh, appearance fees? Or you can say, my customary appearance fee is, and then name something, but I'm willing to to work with you to fit within your budget. Um, but the default that we have is that, oh, I can't ask mm-hmm. for, you know, of course everyone else is volunteering and I should as well. But but your time and energy, it's taking you away from writing. Mm-hmm. This is reminding me of the idea of delegating to yourself or also like almost creating a persona mm-hmm. that does the things that you don't want to do. Uh, I'm thinking about <laughs> actually uh, when I was growing up, my parents had a really small business where they took orders like for records over the phone. And they were the only ones working there, but they actually had customer service names because if people thought they were talking to the owner, they would feel one way. But if they thought they were just talking to like some random person, they would be another. And so they would be like, oh, I'll relay that and like to themselves. But what's nice is like sometimes that other you can kind of be like, well, I don't want to ask for that much. But like this other part of my brain (laughs) that's like all about the commerce is going to be like, no, this is the rate and this is what I'm sticking to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like that weird sort of putting it on the other part of yourself, being your own assistant almost is a way to kind of make yourself feel, it's not you doing it, it's the part of you that needs to eat doing it. There are the, also speakers bureaus that will help you do this. Yeah, the metric that I use for myself on whether or not I should do should invoke this is that I imagine it's like, okay, if a, a friend of mine were, were offered this opportunity, what advice would I give them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I've got... Several friends. We've all got friends who do uh, speaking visits at uh, schools, and the one common denominator I've seen among them all is if the school gives you any sort of speaking fee, any sort of appearance fee, they treat you so much better this than if correct. you show up as a volunteer. You mm. show up unpaid, and they treat you like a substitute teacher. But if you've got a $50 appearance fee, suddenly you're a VIP. Um, and, it's I mean, not $50, just schools. You know, it's it, everywhere. It, cool. It's not just schools. Um, but if many of you, if you want to write uh, YA or middle grade, mm-hmm. uh, school appearances will become a big part of what you're doing. And early on, you need to be asking for those appearance fees just so you get treated well. Mm-hmm. There's a weird inversion that happens. People value what they pay for, and if they're paying you a high fee, they will treat you in that sort of premium way. If they're if you're being paid a very low fee, then that in their head, psychologically, that's what you're worth. So you're just helping them treat you better by asking for more money. Exactly. That's right. uh, <laughs> the last thing I want to get to before we close out this episode is about being a VIP in a different way, and that is fellowships and grants. Uh, but there are people out there who will just pay you to be an artist in the world. Uh, we care about the arts sometimes more than others, but most states, uh, if you're in the United States, counties, provinces, wherever you are, oftentimes your local jurisdiction will have some sort of arts council that cares about the arts and gives out money if you've lived in that area long enough. 
So try looking that up in your area and seeing what it is. It could be $20, it could be $2,000. A lot of it depends on where their arts funding is and it can change year to year. But a lot of times they really want artists to want to be in their community and they will give money to you to continue to be an artist in your community. I'll give one sort of piece of like very practical advice. Sometimes these types of fellowships will ask for like, I want to fund your project. And sometimes I'll be like, I want to fund you. And you're like, but I always want the money for me. So what I do is I will turn <laughs> me into a project and I will say, you know what? Um, I have to work, uh, you know, X number of hours a day to make money. And instead, if you pay me that hourly rate for X amount of hours, I can be creating art. And so it's an easy way when you don't have like tools or supplies the way that like a visual artist might to say like, it's the time that's the thing. Pay me for my time and then you will get art back. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they don't actually need you to deliver a specific product. The point is that you got the money from them, that you thank them. If you ever wrote a book after that, put them right in the acknowledgements. Couldn't have done it without local jurisdiction X. And there are also sort of bigger foundations and stuff. And we'll try to link to some resources in the liner notes of places you can find grants like this. But I would say, put yourself out there, do that thing where you write up who you are. And as an artist, like the same way you would for a book, you can do that for yourself and put it out there and find people who are willing to give you some of the money so that you mm -hmm. can do the writing that you want to do. There are national level organizations, there are private organizations, there are local organizations. All of these, many literary writers support themselves or fund a lot of, especially their early work, by going to these fellowships, these retreats, getting these grants. I always wish genre writers were more aware of them and knew how to pursue them. So I love that you're talking about this. And I hope people will start doing a little bit of research and finding ways to uh, get access to those resources. So I think that brings us to our homework. Um, so Aaron was just talking about something that is called an, an artist statement. And while it sounds like a thing that is you will only need for writing grants, it's actually an extremely useful exercise to do for yourself. You, you'll hear a businesses do like a vision statement. And an artist statement is very much the same thing. It's about who you are, what's important to you, what you're trying to put out into the world. So you can just Google artist statements, look at a bunch of examples of them, but take a moment Write an artist statement for yourself, even if you're not planning on pursuing a grant. It will help you focus on what is important for you. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write an artist statement. Hey, writer. Have you sold a short story or finished your first novel? Let us know. We love hearing about how you've applied the stuff we've been talking about to craft your own success stories. Use the hashtag... WX success on social media or drop us a line at success at writingexcuses.com. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. 
Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 